0: I really like the word "behold." Now, I don't use it in everyday conversations because no one uses it in everyday conversations in the kind of way I mean in in this. It's I, I like I like it. I just think it sounds. I guess it probably sounds old, possibly because the word "old" is in it. Uh, it's a bit archaic, but what it it, it means? Look but in such a way that grabs your attention to, to really see something or realise something. So you can't say, oh, I can behold that. And that's fine, but it's quite passive. Behold is like, behold, you know, I want your attention. Look at this. Maybe you even need to respond uh, to this. And, and I like Bible translations uh, that, that, that keep this word. I mean, if you've got a really, really old translation, they may even say, "Lo." But I mean, that would obviously be ridiculous. Uh, so i guess it would behold. Um, so yeah, it can, be also, it can be all sorts of things. You know, behold, the clocks have gone forward. Now it's news. Uh, it, re- it requires a response. And you responded today or your phone responded on your behalf, which is great. Uh, behold, the lights have turned green. Often people behind us in traffic queues. Um, uh, that's what they're saying. And they've summarized it by like hitting their horn. What they're saying is, behold, you need to do- something's happened. You need to see it and you need to act upon it. And and so it's it's dramatic news. It's attention-grabbing news. So say, for example, behold, negotiations are ongoing. That doesn't work. (laughs) Now, behold, the days of beholding are mostly behind us. And so many modern Bible translations don't use it, and that's totally fine. They replace it with something like, look, or they rearrange the sentence so that it still has that that, that kind of arresting attention uh, that was originally meant. And today, God wants us to behold Jesus. He really does. And uh, he's calling us to give him our attention. Uh, He's calling us to to love him more. And that happens as we see him more. And so that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to read the first of the servant songs in Isaiah. It's in Isaiah chapter 42. And it starts with a command to behold. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look then at seven things about this servant that this passage tells us. Sometimes it's good to stare intently at just one thing. And in a couple of weeks, I'll be preaching from Isaiah 53, and I probably will just talk about one thing. But this week, I felt it was one of those, it was one of those songs that just required, had multiple angles to it, multiple approaches uh, that God wants us to look at Jesus through all, in all these different ways. And so that's what we're going to do today as we look at Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. Behold, my servant... I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Why don't we pray together? Lord, we want to behold you today. Lord, we want to see you. We want to be arrested uh, by you. We want to see you in all of your glory. And so we need you to help our hard hearts, our tired bodies, our feeble minds. God, give us grace now, please, to see you in these seven ways and more besides. Amen. Amen. All right. First thing to say about this servant is that this servant, uh, spoilers, is Jesus. The servant is Jesus. This uh, particular song is quoted by Matthew in his gospel as being about Jesus. And when you look uh, throughout the New Testament, uh, you see many references to uh, Jesus being God's servant. That's a phrase that's used of lots of other people in the Bible as well. But this unique servant, this special servant, and this servant uh, who's spoken of in Isaiah, oftentimes the New Testament will say, look, Jesus is doing what Isaiah said the servant would do. And when you look at Jesus' character, when you look at Jesus' ministry, they fit perfectly with these songs. One of the things I found interesting to do this week, I'll mention it again in a moment, is uh, Philippians 2, a great song of Jesus' humility in the New Testament. You put this song and that song together, and that they're remarkably uh, t- uh, entwined and speaking to one another. So the servant is Jesus. And so when God says, behold, my servant, what he's saying is, look at Jesus, look at him. The great 19th century Scottish preacher, Robert Murray Moshane, put it like this, said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. That is excellent advice. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, look at him. I encourage you to look at him, see what he is showing you about himself. Read the accounts of his life uh, that he's given us in his word. Ask people who are around. There are loads of people around you today who have seen Jesus uh, by faith. They, they, they know him. Uh, they've met him. They've seen him at work and they can tell you what, it, what he's like and uh, he's just not, he just doesn't want you to settle for a, a kind of a blurry notion or, or a vague, uh, shadowy figure. He wants you to see him face to face. And that's what happens for us when we put our trust in Jesus. The Bible talks about it being suddenly we see. And so I encourage you, uh, you. Again, you, you may be here today. You're, you're not sure what you believe. Well, I'm going to show you some things about him. I want you to see him. And you can respond to him today. Have your eyes opened today. And if you're a Christian, fill your mind's eye with him. May he be in your thoughts all the time. I found that trying to memorize passages that are about Jesus is really helpful uh, for this. Because there are times, when, just when life's difficult, just when life is dark, just when we don't know what's going on, we think, what, what is happening? I, what do I, say? I I need at that moment to be able to see Jesus. I don't want to cheer myself up with some kind of false hope. I want to see Jesus. And so having the truths of Scripture at that point is so helpful because my mind might go all over the place, but the Bible doesn't change because God doesn't change. And so I I say to myself, Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That's me looking at Jesus, that he's got all this steadfast love that never runs out, that he's faithful every day, that the fact that I have slept, he hasn't slept, he hasn't needed to. Wow, his greatness and his glory. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were made. Wow, how amazing, how mighty. But Philippians 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. Wow, that's how I'm saved. That's how I'm rescued. Even though this mighty one, image of the invisible God made all things, came, emptied himself, made himself a servant. And so I can say, Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He uh, leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's what he loves doing. I'm looking at Jesus. Psalm, uh, Isaiah 53, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks time. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. This is Jesus. This is who he is. And we all forget. And so we all need to bring this before our eyes repeatedly. And the great thing about memorising it is that the lights can be off and you can see him. Also, we've just got so many stories about him, haven't we? We've got these gospel stories all about the things that Jesus did. People he cared for, people he healed, people he challenged, people he taught. And then as we remember at Easter, how he suffered for us, what he did for us. And those things are kind of easier to remember in one way because you're not like, oh, which way around does that word go? I've forgotten. No, no. You just have to picture it in your mind. With all these things, we are looking at him. As we read and repeat and think on these things, we are beholding Jesus. We're staring at him. The more we see of him, the more we praise him, the more we love him. Behold my servant, God says to us. Second thing is that this servant is loved by God whether you love him or not, whether I've just said all of those things and you thought, yeah, wonderful or not, God loves him. God the Father loves him. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. That's the Father speaking of the Son. And those words are echoed when Jesus was baptised. In Matthew 3, 17, um, Jesus was baptised and, and, and heaven is opened and the Father shouts down to the earth, this is my beloved Son. With whom I'm well pleased. I meant to hear the the echo, the, the connection between these two great statements. There is no prouder father of any son than God of Jesus. And we should hear that when God speaks of him. They know each other perfectly, utterly in every way. And there's no fault to be found. The father's never had to go, oh yeah, but the son's never been rebellious. They have always been united perfectly. In love and grace and glory and joy. The word that's translated uphold here, it means to grip tightly. It's like the Father saying, I am not letting you go. Verse six says, I will take you by the hand and keep you. This is this closeness that they have. In fact, we believe as Christians that they're they're not just two people who are really close. They are one. God's soul delights in Jesus. He's thrilled by him, He adores him, He loves telling him how great he is. And Jesus himself explains why in John 10:17, "For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again." We're going to celebrate Easter in three weeks time, and we're going to, we're going to say, "Yes, this is great hope for me." And uh, I'm going to talk about hope today, and when the people get baptized, they'll say, "I'm putting my hope in Jesus." But the father celebrates Easter as his son's crowning achievement, as the greatest act of obedience, and as the fulfillment of the plan that they made together before the beginning of time. This servant is loved by God. Third thing, the servant is filled with the Holy Spirit. Now throughout the Old Testament, uh, you often see God's uh, spirit, which is his presence, his power. His spirit is sent to people who need divine strength. And the same is true for this servant. So the giving of the servant uh, was also sometimes it was accompanied by oil being poured on the person, smeared on them. It was a symbol of what was happening to them, that something outside of themselves was being put on them. Priests and kings were anointed with oil. They had to represent and they had to rule. And God was saying, you cannot do this in your own strength. And so I'm going to give you my spirit. This word anointing or became a, a, a picture of uh, not just something that was happening then, but of a promise that was going to happen. An anointed one would come. The kings and the priests, they were, they were echoes, they were shadows, they were signs to one who was going to come who was fully anointed, who had the Spirit of God in a measure unlike any other. But had come to do what, I, what God needed the world to do to have done for it and what the world needed God to do. In Hebrew, the word for anointed one is Messiah. And in Greek, the word is Christos. So Jesus Christ is God's anointed. He is filled with the empowering Holy Spirit of God. At his baptism, the Spirit descended on him. And soon afterwards, he is described as being in the power of the Spirit. He launched his ministry uh, and Luke's gospel tells us, and I think Dan will preach on this on Easter Sunday by uh, reading from another of the servant songs, Isaiah 61. He says, how does, how does Jesus define himself? First, first thing Jesus says to announce his public ministry is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's a sign to Jews who lived for years, for centuries with this promise. At some point, an anointed one is going to come. And when Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he's saying, it's me. God has given me his Spirit. Now, if Jesus, the eternal Son of God, needed the Holy Spirit, how much more do we? See, Jesus set aside his glory and was filled with a strength outside of himself to do what God had called him to do. If he needed to do that, how much more do we? Wouldn't it be crazy for Jesus' followers to try and do things in their own strength? Wouldn't that be ridiculous? Yes, it would. God's plan for this anointed one was that he would anoint many, many more. In fact, all who followed him. No longer would it be occasional one-off, special people, priests, kings, as it was in the Old Testament. Now God says, I'm going to pour out my Spirit on all flesh. God's plan is for you to be empowered, filled with his Holy Spirit. To switch to another picture of the Spirit, uh, he's also the breath of God. And living the Christian life in your own strength is like trying to move a boat by blowing into the sails. You need the wind. You need the wind, the breath of God. Fourth thing, this servant is bringing Justice. Justice is central to this song. It's repeated three times. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. It's important, central to Jesus' mission. What does it mean? What does justice mean? Because for us, we tend to think of justice meaning someone being punished for something when they've done something wrong. Yep, and so the the court case will happen, Uh, the person will be sentenced, they'll go to prison, and then we will say, justice has been done. Or if they don't go to prison, we'll say, justice hasn't been done. And so for most of us, most of the time, that's what we think of as justice. It's a punitive thing. But the word, certainly according to the Bible, has a far richer, deeper meaning than that. It's not just punishing things that have gone wrong. It is about putting things right, trying to fix what's gone wrong and what's been done wrong. But actually, it's more than that as well, because it's actually it's about making things right. So let me try and give you a sense of what that that difference looked like. Imagine, I mean, it's a horrible scenario. Imagine a home uh, being bombed. The innocent inhabitants may well want the people who attacked them to be punished, but they want their home back too. And a court's decision about someone's guilt and a prison sentence for the person who bombed their home it doesn't bring their home back, does it? And so we would say justice would not have been done if just someone has been put in prison. We want to we put things right. But putting something right kind of doesn't go far enough. Putting something right is saying, to someone, well, there's the rubble of your house, rebuild it. It's, it's actually, it's not enough. But if we were to make things right, if we were to make things right, we would give them the resources to build a new home. In fact, and it wouldn't just be like, here was your original home, let's make sure it's exactly the same as that, because there were no doubt be things in that home that, they, that wasn't how they wanted them to be. So we have got to make something better than it was before. But that's not going to quite do it either, is it? Because what about those tears that they shed? What about that fear that they experienced and still lived with them because of the scars of what had happened? What if we could make those things right? As well, What if we could heal them in such a way that they'd say, all my tears have been wiped away. I feel no fear anymore. And what if they made that new house a place of peace and productivity? And what if they were then able to invite the people who attacked them into the home and be reconciled to them? That would be making things right This would be something new happening, which would have completely overcome what happened before. And that's what the Bible means when it talks about justice. It means all of those things. When you see the news, or you uh, maybe read history, or read stories of people's lives, or you just look around our city and our, our nation, and Maybe even things in your own life. Don't you want God to make things right? You, you, you feel, maybe you, can't, you haven't been able to articulate it like that so far. So far, you're just like, I know that's wrong. And it's horrible. It's breaking my heart. It's depressing or whatever it is. But this is where you need to go with that because this is God's intention. He's, he's like, Yeah, it is wrong. I'm going to make it right. Jesus told us at the appointed time, he will return to the earth to bring justice. That's what the song says he's going to do and Jesus speaks about it all throughout uh, the Gospels. And often when people say, oh, Jesus is so lovely, you say, have you heard what he says about the fact that he's going to come back and judge everyone? He is going to do that. Actually, when we see justice like this, this is great news. There will be a day of judgment when all that has been said and thought and done will be judged by God and right punishment will be apportioned. Then what follows for those who have put their trust in Jesus and actually for all of creation is described by Jesus in Revelation 21 verse 5. Behold, he says, look, I am making all things new. I'm making all things new. I'm not just going to take the rubble of this earth and the mess that you've made of it and try and fix it up a bit. It's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. and There'll be no more weeping, no more pain, no more suffering, no more injustice, no more striving and strife and violence because there'll be no more lack and there'll be no more sin in our hearts and no more systematic injustice. All of those things, Jesus says, will be gone and replaced with harmony and peace and joy and fruitfulness and satisfaction god can do these things god is the creator and he is the recreator he makes all things new with all the chaos and worry that we are living in what's happening what's going to happen what's happening here what's happening down there what's happening everywhere Followers of Jesus have a sure and certain hope. And accompanying that, a responsibility to live justly, to warn of what is to come and to enact it now. Fifth thing about this servant, the servant is not like us. He's really not. Let's pause looking at him and let's briefly consider ourselves. Murray McShane said 10 to 1 looks. well." I'm kind of doing 6 to 1, but I hope that's all right. There's glorious descriptions of this servant. This is an amazing passage about Jesus. There's some stuff said about us. It's less amazing. We are bruised and damaged. Often we've done this ourselves. Sometimes others have done it to us. We're like a faintly burning candle, easily snuffed out, permanently on the edge of collapse. Who of us here knows what tomorrow will bring or even if it will be our last day? You have no idea. We're waiting for a savior to come because we cannot save ourselves. We are creatures, we are created, and we are sustained by God. We're utterly dependent on Him from first to last. We are blind to the truth unless he enlightens us. We're imprisoned by sin unless he sets us free and we have made idols in rivalry to God. We have trusted the works of our own hands rather than him and we have made sacrifices for the sake of empty promises rather than for his kingdom. That's why Isaiah 42 tells us about ourselves. He's not like us and we're not like him. But what's interesting about this is that I find at the moment that many people want to improve their self-esteem and the way they want to do that is by people saying nice things about them. Well, they say it about themselves. And I, I understand that. There's a place for that. But you know what? Christians are given something far more than that. Psalm 103. He knows our frame. He remembers that we're dust and that our days are like grass. But... The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Tim Keller puts it like this We are more sinned and we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Because I think when you say things about yourself, yeah, I'm good at this, I'm a beautiful, I'm a strong person, but in your heart of hearts, somewhere there's a little voice saying, You're not really. You are to an extent, but not enough. And the gospel says, no, you're worse than you thought. It's much worse and much better because the verdict on you isn't your ability. The verdict on you is the love of God. That's what you want to revel in. That's what we need to rejoice in. And that's what's going to take us back to look at Easter. We're going to see this steadfast love in action, these last two points. Sixth thing, the servant is humble and gentle. I know that's two things, um, but Jesus puts them together and this song puts them together, so I'm doing the same. So Matthew 11:29, Jesus says, Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And the song says, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick, a candle he will not quench. You see, unlike the rulers of this world, he's not arrogant, he's not aggressive, he's not attention-seeking. When he lived among us, he was the very opposite of these things. There were times when the crowd said, let's make him king, and he got out of there. Instead, he chose the path of obscurity and of ridicule and of weakness. And when he could have called on 10,000 of angels to gather around and sing his praise and smite his enemies... He let them arrest him and beat him and crucify him in obedience to the plan that he and the Father had made. He is so humble, and this humility links to his gentleness. The proud don't like to associate with the weak, but King Jesus came for those who couldn't help themselves. He got down in the dirt. He accepted a bad reputation. He was shamed on the cross for sinners like you and me. This is how his greatness, because of his humility, means gentleness for us. Just like that word that Karen brought. So encouraged by it because it was like, I'm going to talk about this. He is mighty and he gets close to you. and gives you this love. It's amazing. The song says a, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench, he will not grow faint or discouraged. Those two lines, they're, they're, they're meant to connect. You may be a very faint light, You're like just a tiny flickering candle, but he will not grow faint. His love, his light burns brightly for you. You may feel bruised by life, you may feel useless, But he will not be discouraged from his mission of love. The words for bruised and discouraged are the same in Hebrew. They're both crushed. So he's saying, you may be crushed, he will not be crushed. And that means hope for you. Final thing, the servant is the new covenant. God uses an unusual phrase when he's talking about me in verse 6. He says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. And scholars find this difficult because a covenant is an agreement. It's a treaty. It's a deal. It's not a person. And throughout the Old Testament, God relates to people through covenants. That's how he does it. They're partnerships which are initiated by God. They unite people to him and his purposes. God says, I'm going to do this with you. Here's how you'll respond. That's a covenant. He makes promises and he requires his partners uh, to uh, make commitments in return. And you see these throughout the Old Testament and what also you see throughout the Old Testament is people failing to do this. It can seem like, the, it just is like, oh no, they, did it. they got it wrong as well. Even though all those other people have got it wrong, they got it wrong as well. And yet in this doom and gloom, God says, but I'm going to make a new covenant one day that cannot be broken. It's a deal which is better than any ever made in which God promises no longer just to be the initiator of the deal, but the one who makes it happen as well. He gives promises and he fulfills the commitments. He brings both of them together. There will be things for us to do, as those who are brought into this covenant, but we are entirely enclosed by what God has done. In this covenant, all our sins will be forgiven. Because God has punished someone else in our place. In this covenant, all our bruises will be healed and we'll have new strength. In this covenant, a flame will be lit in us, which cannot be extinguished because it doesn't come from us. It comes from him. And in this covenant, we will be seen as perfectly faithful to God. And one day we will be made into those who are able to be perfectly faithful to God and will live with him forever. The Old Testament throbs with longing for this covenant. Again and again, it's like, oh, please, will this day come? A new covenant. When will the new covenant come? When will the new covenant come? What will it even be like? I don't know. And then one night in a room with some friends, Jesus takes some wine and says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He makes the deal and he is the deal. And this is how God can be both sides of an agreement, by sending his son to become one of us. When we eat or drink something, we we absorb it. It it becomes part of us in a way. And Jesus gave us bread and wine uh, or juice as we tend to use to eat and drink to show us that we have become united with him in a covenant of love and of hope and of joy. And so every time we take communion as we're just about to, and especially at Easter when we remind ourselves of the whole way in which this happened, We're celebrating our hope. Now, like the justice that we spoke of earlier, this covenant has begun. Its effects are starting to work in those of us who are putting our trust in him, but we await its final completion when Jesus returns and makes everything, including us, new. This is what the servant does. Until then, we look to him. We share in the love of God. We receive the power of the Holy Spirit. We work for justice. We confess our sins and admit our weaknesses. We accept the humbling and gentle salvation offered to us and we eat bread and wine in celebration of a new covenant that has been made with all who believe.